There's a phrase that we use when we study the Bible. It's called the full counsel of God's word. And it just means it's great to read everything the Bible has to say about a certain thing or a certain topic because what happens is the Bible is like glimpses into people's lives. It's stories of things that happen at specific times and specific moments. And sometimes something happens in a certain moment that's unique to that moment. And like, well, all right, so is this what everyone should do at all times? Or is this the only word that God's ever said on this topic? And then you read through this book here. This collection covers 1,500 years of history. So 1,005 years of moments, 500 years of moments um, where God did certain things. And then when you look at them all together, you say, oh, okay, I can see the full counsel of God's word. And we think when you start to do this, you start to get excited if you're like me because you're like, oh, I didn't realize that that piece connected to this piece. I thought that was a one-time deal. Whoa, that happens over here as well. And all oh, this happens over here. And you start connecting. It becomes like this giant, beautiful puzzle. And then you realize that the puzzle is still being built. And you realize you're a part of that puzzle. You're like, oh my goodness. All these things that have happened over thousands of years, that could happen in my life. So not many of us would ever expect to be Moses parting the Red Seas. That feels like one of those once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-world-time kind of events. But what we read this morning is another parting of another body of water. You're like, oh, I, I thought that was the Red Sea, but today we're at the Jordan River. Well, I thought God did that for Moses, but he did it for Joshua, so maybe just God parts waters. Maybe it wasn't Moses. And maybe it wasn't about the Red Sea. Maybe we have a God who's able to do that. And then we say, oh, well, what are we right on the edge of? What's stopping us? What are we fighting against? What's threatening to flood us and overwhelm us? Maybe could God part that? Could we walk through unscathed through something that should kill us? Well, absolutely we can. And so we look at these moments in history and we learn from them. And so I just want to start by diving right in and reading from the book of Joshua where we've been. We're in chapter 3. And I want to read another parting of a body of water. I want to read how God split the Jordan River, kind of continue our study in Joshua. We've talked about Rahab. We've talked about Joshua being mentored. We've talked about him becoming who God wanted him to be and who he's growing into. Well, this is another one of those those milestone moments in Joshua's life. And it might feel unrelatable, but it's not. It, it so isn't. It's so relatable. Um, we're not on a Jordan River. But when you see what we can see in this story, I hope that you'll find it just as inspiring as it has been to me as I've been reading it in preparation for, for talking this morning. Um, my job is not to invent things or create things or even to be overly clever or creative. It's to be genuine and accurate. So as we study God's word, that's all I'm trying to be. And that's all I want you to be as you read it. Are we getting it right? Are we reading it right? That's all we can ask. Because then we'll get out of it what we need to. And I think each one of us might get something different from it. But there's a beautiful, beautiful lesson to be learned here. And that's why we turn to God's word. Say, all right, what are you going to teach us today? So let's read chapter 3. We're going to go into chapter 4. And if we are just kind of stepping into our, our study on Joshua here midstream, um, Joshua has been tasked with helping the Israelites get into the promised land. 
and they need to be delivered. And so just like Moses helped deliver them out of Egypt, Joshua is going to deliver them out of the wilderness into the promised land. He's a military commander. Um, he's a man who speaks face to face with God. He, he's got this close relationship with God. What God says, he just does. And then it turns out amazing. And uh, he's a leader. He's leading an entire nation as he follows the Lord. So they've gotten to a Jordan River they need to get across. This is how God leads them through it. I hope that you'll read with me and, and think back to this moment, what it would have been like if you were standing there on the banks of the Jordan with Israel. Joshua 3 verse 1 says, Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim. And as they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and you shall follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits, 3,000 feet in our modern measurement, in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves. So like purify yourselves, wash yourselves, prepare, pray for tomorrow morning. The Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went before the people. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel so that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. Now that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. Kind of like appoint these men. We're going to see what they're appointed to in a moment. But pick one man from each tribe. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand up in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout this time of harvest. Then the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing down towards the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite to Jericho. Now the priests bearing the, car, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Now, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. So the Joshua called these twelve men, 
from the people whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. They took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. They carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Now Joshua himself set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan. In the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over the Ark of the Lord, and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, they passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So jo Joshua commanded the priests to come up out of the Jordan. When the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. So the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And we're going to stop there. Is there anything as we read through it that you noticed that maybe you didn't notice before? Maybe it's a familiar story to some. Is there anything that stood out to you? Like, wow, that part to me was so interesting. Or I wonder about that. Before we go on and kind of talk more about this moment, what stood out to you in hearing? I didn't know about Joshua put stones in the middle. Yeah, there's two memorials that happen. Yeah. One for the people and one for the leader. And that matters. That matters. Yep. Yeah. Roz. So the ones that are in the middle of the Jordan mm -hmm. are still there and you could only find They were at the time of this writing. Like having a deep sea diver to go find them? Possibly. Possibly. I mean, it's been long enough since then that they might have been moved or, or whatnot. But the, the thought was that at the lowest level, those rocks would then be appearing. Oh. Right? Back then, when it's written, there are those stones to that day when it's at its lowest point, which Joshua piled up to commemorate the place where God did the miracle. So yeah, yeah, two memorials happen. That's good, that's good. Anything else stand out or interesting? Sally? Well, I'm just scratching my head because I really have read this over and over again, but never really was impacted by the fact that the Jordan was dried up too. 
I mean, maybe because as a kid in Sunday school, we sang about God parting the Red Sea. Right. <laughs> and, and that was a big deal. But, man, this is a big deal. Yeah. And I was thinking, yeah. he did this at the beginning of their journey, and he did it at the end of their journey. Mm -hmm. God doesn't just happen to do something. There's a reason why yeah. that I don't get yet, but I'm hoping that God mm. will reveal it to me. Yeah, 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 it is. It's so important. And it's kind of like a lost story. It's maybe not as exciting as the chariots chasing them and them being on the run and them getting swamped. Like, that's part of what happened with Egypt. But here, it's like, you can't get there. No way, no how. These banks are flooded, but God said it's going to happen. So God steps in to make something happen that shouldn't be able to happen. He's keeping his promise to his people. He's elevating Joshua. He's letting the people know this Joshua guy, he really was with Moses. I really have talked to him. You can trust him the way you trust him. So God's like building on his promises, reaffirming Joshua's leadership in this moment. Um, yeah, there's a lot of wonderful. Anything else? I'm just curious because it was just this long passage. There's a lot in there. David. Yeah, to me it was like, Seeing how the miracle happened and how it's explained in a historical context is like, yeah, it's, 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 it's supernatural the way that the, the flow of water stopped. Mm. But they're like, okay, it stopped in this point in this city and then it stopped flowing down here. So then you're like, okay, this, this actually happened. This is not a, a tale, you know? And then like, oh, you know, those stones are still there. Go check it out. So it's, yeah. as they're writing, right. we're talking about, I don't know, I don't even know how many years, 2000, 3000 years ago. They're yeah. being historically correct and being like, this, this is, I'm telling you what happened. And that's like, whoa, so it's a supernatural, how it plays out in the natural, and how it's plastered in, in, in the word for us. It's like, yeah, I love that. When you read statements like that, that should be more confirmation to you that this is an authentic piece of writing from history that has been preserved. Because if you wrote something like this today, like if we said at Six Metal Hill Court, where there's a giant golden unicorn, as everyone knows, and it stands there. To, anyone who read it at that time would be like, well, this is ridiculous. I live in Easton. There's no gigantic. So it would not make it past five years from now because it would be so ridiculed in the moment, it wouldn't get a chance to make it to history, right? So when you read something in history that talks about the moment and was read at the time, it had to have the agreement of the people who would read it at the time. Otherwise, it's like fantasy literature and it would just get discarded. So those historical moments, the to this day type stuff, indicate that everyone knew that that was happening. And because they agreed to it, the book stands. And so we read in hindsight, that's more confirmation that this was authentically agreed upon and recognized by the people who lived it out. Witnesses. Witnesses, that's I mean, a great way to say just, it. Yeah. There are 40,000 soldiers alone. Yeah. That's a lot. Never yeah. mind how many other people were with that tribe. It takes right. a long time probably to cross that many people. Yeah, think about the poor priests. <gasps> They're just standing there holding the ark in the middle of the river for like everybody. So they all passed before the ark. And that's symbolic too. I mean, there's so many things in there that I just want to like think about and appreciate. But like the whole nation of Israel passed before the blessing of the Lord and was like, like a priest saying there, God bless you. Goes blood. They passed right before the ark. That's what you do to receive the blessing from the priest. And the entire nation was blessed into the promised land. There are moments like that. Even the city where the water stopped is Adam. God's blessing is taking them into the promised land after all the sin that has come from Adam. And it's all piled up all the way back to the beginning because God's about to do the thing to fix the thing. 
right? Like there's wonderful symbolism in this, but I don't like to take it too far into the symbolic land because then it takes it out of history. It's history. This isn't a metaphor about life, but there's wonderful things. And who was it just yesterday? Was it, oh, it was Tracy saying she's been blown away recently by the numbers in the Bible and how the threes here or sevens here or things that happened. Like there are these parallels, so look for them, but don't turn the Bible into some kind of like weird magic eight ball where you just get out of it whatever you want or it's like all a nice myth. No, this is history. And that's why we have faith that God can take us through our moments. So what would you say is the hero of this story? There's a few options. Maybe you look at it from different ways. Who or what is the hero in this story? God. God? Okay. God's doing the thing, right? I mean, you could think it's Joshua, right? God's choosing to elevate him. So he's the man leading. He obeys. Could be the priests or even the Ark, right? The Ark of the Covenant. It's the central thing. The Ark of the Covenant is mentioned more than anything else in this. It's more about the Ark than it's about Joshua, if you're just counting the number of times that things are mentioned. It's more about the Ark than it is about the Jordan, if we're looking at frequency. It's more about the Ark than it is about Israel. It's more about the Ark than it is about the stones. It's like the Ark is actually the featured piece of this entire thing, the Ark of the Covenant. So it makes us step back and go, okay, this happens revolving around the Ark of the Covenant. What is the Ark? And do you remember? It's a box about two and a half feet by two and a half feet by two and a half feet by almost four feet. It's a small box. It's covered with gold inside and outside. And inside it, there are two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on it. Remember, this is what was built to hold these words from the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the tablets given to Moses. So when that Ark of the Covenant moves around, what moves with it? Pillar of fire and smoke, right? This, this presence of God in this location, this Ark of the Covenant, was what God chose to use to speak to his people. He picked a, picked a spot. He's like, I'm going to appear here and speak to you from this. Do you remember the top of it was called the mercy seat? Throne. Throne. And there were two angels on top of the ark, and their, their, their wings would touch. And if you read back to the book of Exodus in uh, chapter 25 and then chapter 40, you see that God said, I'm going to speak to you from this mercy seat so that you might know my will. So Moses would come in in the tent of meeting with the Lord and then in the tabernacle with all their beautiful curtains and all this ornate, gilded and embroidered things to show the beauty of the Lord. God would meet there. And his presence would settle there. So the Ark of the Covenant isn't a sacred item. The Ark of the Covenant is the manifestation of the presence of God. It's God's presence. It's his words. It's his truth. It's his power. And it led the Israelites for 40 years. They said whenever the pillar of fire moved on, they would pack up all their tents. They'd pick up this Ark, pick up the tabernacle, and they would just move. And then when it settled, they would settle because God said, okay, it's time to move. So we have the Holy Spirit. We, we pray. We close our eyes say, God, speak to us. And we hear God whisper in our ear. They had the Ark of the Covenant and they had Moses. And then they had Joshua. They would follow this presence of God. So if you put that into this context, you see God was leading them into the Jordan. God's presence and his power were holding up. God's words that you can trust me. You can step into this raging rapids of the river and you're going to be okay. God's promise, I'm going to give you this land. You're going to make it across. I like the one little quick sentence that said, and Israel crossed in haste. It's like it's going to hold, right? We're good, right? Like in the Red Sea, like they're just walking and like the water's piled up on either side. Like 
There's the faith, but also the fear. Like, we're sure, right? And then God proves it. He proves himself again and again. So this ark is the, the central point of this story because it's God's footstool where he, he chose to manifest his presence. It's his throne room where he sits and speaks to people. It's his presence. It's his guidance. And so for all of those reasons, it is the symbol that God uses to say, this is how you're crossing the river. It's because of God. It's because you followed me. And it's because you put me central. My words, my guidance. Um, did a little research and realized that the word ark just means a box. It can also mean a coffin. It's literally just an encased box. But when I read that it could mean coffin, that meant something to me. Because the Ark of the Covenant is not the only Ark that we know about in Scripture, right? If you ask kids from Sunday school, again, what waters parted? Red Sea, chariots, Pharaoh. What Ark saved people? Noah, animals, flood, rainbow, right? That's where your mind goes. But what was that Ark except a wooden box used by God to save his people from the floods? Like Noah's crisis, Noah's problem, insurmountable challenge, was that the entire world was going to be flooded. And God said, if you join me in this place, this thing that I've set apart, my promises are that I will save you through it. And you would die if it weren't for this box that you go into that I'm going to make for you. But you know what? It's not the end. You're actually going to climb out of that coffin on the other end and everyone else will have died but you will live. So the ark for Noah is a resurrection story. He came out of the coffin. This is the story of Jesus, right? He came out of the tomb. This is the story of the ark of the covenant as well. We will save you from destruction from all these surrounding nations because of this box. But what's in it? The words of God. What's around it? The presence of God. That's what's going to deliver you from the things that would kill anyone else. The things that will kill everyone else, but they will not kill you. Do you know the same terminology, this ark, is used for Moses in the bulrushes, the basket? His mother made an ark for him. A small container, lovingly made, that would preserve his life through the waters so that he might have a resurrection story on the other side with Pharaoh's family so that he could be used by God for something greater when all the other boys of his age were being killed. It's like God's vessel. It's like from death to life. And I loved that it was a common use of this word ark to be used for a coffin. I love that because that's our story. And so if we come further through that and we go to more than one ark, well, now we're counting Noah's ark. Now we're counting Moses's basket. Now we're looking at the ark of the covenant for the people of Israel. Jesus has got to be our ark. I would say the one who we put our trust in, who takes us through death. The coffin doesn't just close and it's over, but resurrection on the other side of it, the way Sharon was saying earlier. Jesus, the words of God, the word. Jesus, the presence of God. Yeah, that Jesus is our ark. And that gets us to four. But if the word of God being implanted in people, if the presence of God being there is what an ark is, then Jesus says that's what we are too, right? Doesn't the Bible say his word will be written on your hearts? God's Holy Spirit will be inside you? 
And so that makes us vehicles and vessels for the people around us. Again, the same way Sharon was talking about. Are we being an ark for the people around us, for our children? Are we gathering our children into our faith, into our experience of God? Do we have God's words? If you had you know, your heart shaped like a golden box and someone opened it up, what would be your most treasured possessions that would be in there? There are a lot of things we care about, a lot of things we love, a lot of things we want. But in this case, it was just God and nothing else. Now, later, one of the prophets, I think it's Zechariah, says that kept in front of the Ark of the Covenant were Aaron's staff and a jar containing some manna. So they were like kept with. And those are testimonies to things that God had done, right? His words are what goes in. And then his testimonies are what goes around, the remembrances. And Joshua has this here, too. He sets up the stones to remember what God did. But if you flip all the way to the end of the Bible, you start to read the book of Hebrews. He says, in the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff that budded, and manna. And so at some point, they traveled, they carried these things, not only God's word, but the stories about what he'd done. Well, isn't that Jesus again? Isn't he the word incarnate? Isn't he our way through? A lot of parallels have been made between the Jordan River and a baptism. Israel was baptized and into the promised land. Jesus was later baptized in this same Jordan River. Right? Baptism is a death and a life. Like we're baptized into Christ and he carries us through. And yet we're also called to house the same way that ark did you know, don't you know that your body is a temple of God? We're meant to be ornate, really just wooden boxes. <laughs> but because of God's love, he gilds us, he paints us, he elaborately decorates us with his love so that people could look at us and not say, oh, look at you. Nice wooden box. They're like, wow, God made something beautiful out of that ordinary box. And look, that kind of box actually has a second life to it. It's not just a coffin. You don't just live in this body and then die. You move forward and you rise again. So as we see Joshua, as we see Israel, we recognize this is God's pattern. And the most important thing is that the people would follow the ark. That's the most important thing for us, that we follow God's word, not what people say. If it's just Joshua talking, they should not do this. They will all drown, but it's not. It's God. And so they follow. They walk before the ark, as we saw. They set up the stones, and God has a different uh, memorial for the leaders than he does for the people. I think that that's beautiful and special. It's a different experience being a leader. It's like God was saying to Joshua, this monument here, you were in this spot. You saw what he did. You take a moment and commemorate this. And then for all the people, let everyone commemorate this. Let's have our children ask us, how did that happen? And when it is asked, answer, this is what God did for us. So the priests stood on dry land. They pass over before them. All of them pass. They get to the side. As soon as they step out, the waters come back. That city of Adam is said to have been about 17 miles upstream. So uh, the water was held off quite a ways uh, away. A um, little more historical nuggets to help paint the picture for our mind. That portion of the Jordan that they crossed um, is very rocky. And so it says they crossed on dry land. Well, how do you cross on dry land if the river was just rushing? Well, they were just walking on a stone pathway at that point. The waters had receded. They passed on the stones. It was technically dry land. They cross over. 
Um, those um, Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, all those people, remember they were going to leave their families behind to settle, but the warriors went over, so they obey the Lord in that. They obey Joshua. Um, they set it as a, uh, a memorial near Gilgal, where it can be seen to this day. And then that last sentence, it's is done, verse 24, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So if Israel had the Ten Commandments, that was the thou shalt nots, right? The do this. What do we have as believers today? What's our grace-filled version of the Ten Commandments? If you were to guess, what would you say? Do we have a version of the Ten Commandments? Love your God and love your neighbor. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. It's a summary one. Anything else come to mind? Because I had a list of nine commandments, but they're not actually commandments. They're beatitudes that came to my mind as I was thinking about what Jesus might want for us to put in our heart. How do we live? Because if we're going to take this as a one-to-one, -one, then we need to say, well, what are we supposed to be holding in our hearts? And if we take the Ten Commandments, then we're not recognizing that Jesus came to fulfill the law. We're living by law, but we're supposed to live by spirit. And so I thought as the final piece of scripture to put into this context for us to recognize who we're meant to be, that I would just like to read the Beatitudes together to kind of finish this thought. So would you flip with me to Matthew chapter 5? Leave Joshua behind for a moment. Flip over to the first book in the New Testament. We're at the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most amazing collection of Jesus' teachings ever. And specifically... Um, a list of nine things that Jesus lists. If you asked the Old Covenant Jews, um, what are you meant to know? They would say the Shema. They would give you the Ten Commandments. If you ask those in a covenant with Jesus, New Covenant Christians, believers, we would say the greatest commandment and the second that's like it. And then we would list the Beatitudes so I'd like to read them to remind us who we are, to remind us that these are the things that are supposed to be in our heart. But please recognize that the way the laws were commanding you for what to do, Jesus' instruction to us, his Ark of the Covenant, this heart of ours where his spirit dwells, encourage us to think about who we've become and who we are to be. And this is the difference between law and grace. You can tell someone to do something and they may do something good or do something bad, but Jesus makes us good. We become like him. And so we are called by Jesus to become a certain sort of person, not just to do certain sorts of actions. And that's why our heart needs to have these words from God. Uh, King David in the Psalms says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. These are the words from Christ that represent our tablets that I would love to have each of us have in our hearts. So let me just read them to us. Matthew chapter 5. We'll start with verse 1. Seeing all the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a blessing that should be in your heart. This should be what goes before you. This should be what defines us. This is who we are to be as we walk up to our own Jordan rivers as we live 
the presence of God out in the world? Are we poor and humble? Are we lowly? Or are we proud and arrogant and self-serving? One of those two are going to be in your, your heart, in that golden chest that has the most prized things to you. Let it be who Christ calls us to be, and then the waters will part for us as well. Second, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's okay, and it's right. It's good even to experience loss that points us to a God who is infinite love. It is right to recognize our need and the pain of this world so we might appreciate and look forward to eternity with God. In our mourning, to hang on to hope that comfort will come. This is a promise. If this is in us, then when we hit tragedies like we prayed about earlier this morning, it can be the tragedy now. We can experience the full weight of that morning, but knowing that God will not leave us there. We don't have to stay in hopelessness even if we're in full-blown tragedy mourning. God can lead us through. And if that belief is in us, in our heart, as the ark, as the truth of God, the promises of God, it will carry us through. It will carry our brother Danny through the river. The waters will stop. He will make it to the other side. He will not be flooded. He will not be overwhelmed because he knows what he knows. And the truth of God, just like the Ten Commandments, is supposed to sit in us. This is who we are to be and what we are to know. This goes before us into our Jordan rivers. All right, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, the prouse, those who are not out to get everything they can get for themselves, but are standing solidly, that don't get pushed around, but also aren't trying to be aggressively steamrolling others. They're just actively living for God. Their strength applied in the right times at the right ways. Let all who are looking out for themselves be warned. The opposite of that is what's supposed to be in our heart. It's meekness that will actually get us across the Jordan, not our own aggressive natures. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Do you have a hunger inside to know God, to have experiences with Him, like Sharon was saying earlier? Like I just want to have more experience with Him so that I can talk about Him more. The experience I had a week ago, a month ago, a lifetime ago, they just feel like so faded in my memory. Can I have something now? God, can I have a moment with you now so that the rest of this day and tomorrow, all I can do is think back on that wonderful moment that we had together, that hunger for living rightly. If that's in our heart, the Jordan's rivers in our lives will part. It's God's truth in us. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Don't just do the right thing, but feel the right way for the people that need it. Have mercy in our hearts, and we will receive mercy. This is who we are to be, not just actions to do. What if we were perfectly merciful? What if our world had mercy on those who needed it? Like, what a different world that would be. But it's not just a law. It's a character trait. It's an identity. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We get corrupted so easily. What if in our heart we know we're shooting for purity? Because that's who we are. That's who God's making us to be. That's what he does for us. Christ, our righteousness. Will that help us cross the river instead of getting halfway and finding ourselves overwhelmed? Yes, it's a promise. If we are pure in heart, we will see God. A couple more. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Don't just try to make things right. Be a person of peace. Represent God in that way. Be called his son. Be called his daughter because you look and you act like him. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So be willing to have a harder life for a better eternity. Be willing to take an insult for the sake of not backing down from what you believe. Be willing to take burden on yourself for the sake of standing next to someone who looks like they're about to get flooded. Be willing to be persecuted for doing the right thing, being righteous, living rightly. It's not enough that we have a Bible to read about other people's experiences with God. And God didn't want Israel to just have a bunch of laws that they could read about. Oh, that was nice that you said that thing to Moses. He wanted that to be what drives them, the law, the heart of it. But he wanted them to experience his presence. He wanted them to see. The last thing that we can look at from the ark is a little distance measurement that was given. Do you remember what the instructions were for where the Israelites were supposed to stay in proximity to the ark? Like, stay back. Stay back 3,000 feet. Why? So that you can see where God is going because you've never been here before and you don't know the way. It's like losing sight of the forest for the trees. (laughs) Step back and see where God is going so that we can follow him. Best piece of advice you could ever be given. Think about what all those tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people would have been if they were all crowded around the ark. If we step back and say that's where God's going and all follow together, we can see God at work. Can you step back in your own life and just see this is where God's going? Can you step back and say, this is where he's leading? Can you step back just enough to say, God is good? God's doing miracles? Or are there so many things that are overwhelming, so many things that are busy, so many things that are hard, that you're just on to the next crisis as soon as he's done a good thing? We talked about this a few weeks ago, so I won't go into it too much more, but give God the credit. Take a step back. Recognize how amazing he is. Set up some memorials in your life, some journals you can look back on, something written on your bathroom mirror to remember, stories to tell your children, and remember that God is good. And if God has done this before, he can do the same and more for us. He promises. Recognize that God is a God who delivers. Without him, it's not going to happen, but with him, all things are possible. Please pray with me. Jesus, thank you for carrying us through death into life. Thank you for being the truth of God incarnate. Thank you for being the presence of God near us whenever we call, for being our friend even. And I pray for each person here that you would help us to see you, see the Father, see the Spirit at work in this world and recognize there's no Jordan River too big for us. You are not a once and done kind of one hit wonder God. You are always there, always available, always powerful and whatever is needed in that moment, as long as we let you go first, as long as we follow you, as long as your word is the core of it all and all that we treasure up in our heart, we know that you will carry us safely from shore to shore. So I ask for your deliverance for those who need it. I ask for your hope for those that are discouraged. 
I pray for endurance for all of those that are just making a long walk across, across a long river. I pray for those who are holding up your word, for parents who are holding up your word in light of their children, for pastors and Sunday school teachers and uh, professors, uh, authors, Christian authors that are holding up your word, that others might walk in front of you and receive your blessing and cross over to the other side. I pray for stamina and endurance and um, uh, privilege and joy of those who hold out your word to the world. Pray that you would be glorified, Father, through our lives, that uh, the hero of every story would be you, and that your word and your presence would be the focal point and would get more airtime in our stories than all of the details that we have accomplished or all the ways we've been involved. Uh, it's your story, Father. Pray that we give you the glory for it and the credit for it. And I pray for our church family and for those here that you've brought to listen to these thoughts this morning. I pray that you help us to know what this means for us, how to walk, how to treasure your word in our hearts, and uh, the hope and excitement of being led from you into victory, being led into life from death, being led into the promised lands, and ultimately uh, eternity, a promised land with you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.